Good morning, Rogers Park. Good morning. It is good to be with you. My name is Phil Adams. If we have not met, I get to serve here as a pastor, um, mainly over in West Rogers Park, but I also have the privilege of serving you guys here um, by being on the teaching team. If you've got a Bible there, please turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read from verses 18 to 30. It is one of those Irish accent words that's hard for me to say. Eight. We used to live on the eighth floor of a building, and we'd get into the elevator, and someone would say, which floor? And I'd say, eight. And their finger would hover. <laughs> I'd say, eight. <laughs> yes, Romans chapter 8. Why am I here? Verses 18 to 30. Can I just also just give a shout out to the prayer meeting at 9 a.m.? Oh, yes. Michael Zoller, wherever you are, is doing an incredible job of just leading that time at 9 a.m. So if you want to come, come an extra bit earlier next week, come at 9 a.m. And honestly, it'll be a blessing to you and the church as we pray for one another. So please come 9 a.m. in the library um, next week. Let's read Romans chapter 8, 18 to 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. You know when you've seen a good movie, when the movie ends and nobody moves. You're sitting in the cinema and the movie is over and you've got to go home, but the story is just beginning. They've just arrived. They've just started walking towards the horizon. They've just won their freedom. He's just got the girl. The, The credits roll and you're still with the characters and you're trying to stay with them and go where they are going and live what they are living Or you get to the end of the book and you realize all of the chapters in this book were the opening chapters. And the last page should really be called the first page. The conclusion is really the introduction. The end is just the beginning. And that, this morning, summarizes pretty well the big idea of 
the message this morning that our salvation is not finished. It has only begun. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning. Who else would we come to? The creator of the universe, our sovereign God who is in control of all things. And we buy before you this morning, expectant of you, God, to speak into our hearts by your spirit, God. So do that, we pray. God, may we leave changed. May we leave a little bit more like you, God. So God, that we may go into this city and into this world and share of your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, Jimmy drilled home the idea that for all of us who have received new life in Christ, we are sons of God, that God has adopted us into the family of God, making us co-heirs, co-sons, co-daughters with Christ, which is a, a truth that is so deep. It's so, so rich. It's, it's hard to fathom that we are co-heirs with Christ, that his inheritance is now our inheritance. We share in everything that is his. That all of God's heart towards Christ, all of God's love for Christ is now his love towards us. All of God's eternal commitment, all of God's eternal inheritance for Christ is now ours too. And also... As we enter into this new family dynamic, it's not just between us as individuals with God, it's between us as the church, you and I, no matter what your story, no matter what your background or your past, we become brothers and sisters, equally privileged siblings with Christ, with a shared eternal destiny, with God as our shared eternal father. And then the latter part, Verse 17, there's this kind of sentence that's kind of like a, it feels like an add-on. You know when you read in, you're really enjoying the word, and then you get to a verse, and you're like, ah. Verse 17 starts off, it's proclaiming that we are co-heirs with Christ. And then Paul writes, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Or another translation says, we are the children of God if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And if we read that text carefully, we see that it doesn't just say provided that we suffer, but provided that we suffer with Christ. And so we ask Rogers Park, what does this mean? And this is important. Because this will happen, it will happen, it will indeed be the case if we are children of God. So it matters that we can identify the co-suffering with Christ in our lives so that we know we are also co-heirs with Christ. Here are two ways I see the, the Christian life to be suffering with Christ, suffering in the ways that Christ suffered. Number one, firstly, we, we live like Christ lived in a, in a world broken by sin. When Lazarus, the story in the Bible, Lazarus dies and Jesus weeps. Not because he couldn't do anything about it, but because death hurt him. Human suffering grieved him. And so when we feel the effects of living in a broken world, we suffer with Christ. We too feel the same effects when we weep the death, when we weep the cancer 
when we weep the, the loneliness, the depression, when we weep, we weep with Jesus over the pain in this world that he too experienced. The second way that we suffer with Christ and is more, even more directly associated with our new family as co-heirs with Christ, we suffer with Christ because in following him, he shows us a new way to live. We suffer with Christ because he shows us a new way to live. Daryl Guter, a theologian missiologist at Princeton, he gets a little bit narky, a little bit feisty when he says Western theology could be characterized as a process of explaining why the Sermon on the Mount does not apply to us. He's thinking of verses like, do not resist the one who is evil. Did you hear that? Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. I was speaking with a follower of, of Islam a few weeks ago from Burma, where you might know there's, there's a, a Muslim minority people called the, the Rohingyans. Over the past decade, tens of thousands of them have been killed by the Buddhist majority in Burma. Hundreds of thousands of them have, have fled their homes. West Rogers Park is one of the locations in the world where there is thousands of Rohingyans living. But from hearing from this follower of Islam, this Rohingyan, he, he said that there's also a Christian minority in Burma that too is persecuted. Then he said, he said this, there's a Christian minority in Burma that too is perse- persecuted, but you will never know about them because they don't fight back. Following Jesus is to live by an ethic of love which will lead to losing. It will lead to not winning. Suffering. And so to be a co-heir with Christ is to live with a radical ethic that is not of this world, that decenters our own interests and replaces our center with the interests of others, even the interests of our enemies. Living not to elevate ourselves, but to elevate others, or to put it another way, the Christian life is cruciform. It is lived in the form of laying it down. Jesus didn't die to save us just died to save us. He died to show us how to live. And so in this life, the only life the co-heirs of Christ live, where the interests of others is to be placed before our own, which will lead to suffering, is there any joy to be found? Is there any joy to be found? Philippians 4 verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. First Thessalonians 5 verse 18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is, the, is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. These verses can be hard to get our heads around that the Christian life is always to be a life where joy and thankfulness can be found. And we think, always? Especially when we place it right beside other verses like verse 17 where we read that co-suffering with Christ is the proof that we are co-heirs with Christ. Rejoice always. 
Another example, Paul mentions this cruciform life in, in, in Acts, when the, Acts, when the Apostle Paul, he, he wrote, who wrote Romans, is just about after being stoned and left for dead as he preaches the gospel, and he writes in Acts 14, 22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. There is an expectation that the Christian life is a life of hardships due to your radical countercultural love which compels us out into the world, into action. But there is also an expectation that the Christian life will produce uninhibited joy in all and every circumstance. And the key to this present joy, according to Romans 8, is found in activating the future now. The key to this present joy, according to Romans 8, is found in activating the future now. Verse 18 reads like this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. These verses are so good this morning. I don't even, I should just read it. Imagine two, two sisters living in a small town on the road out west in the late 1800s. People are still chasing after the the, the gold rush, and so they're moving across the country with their kids and their wagons. But the the journey is dangerous and and, and cruel. And these two sisters have grown up in this town that they had to stop in because their father got struck down with an illness along the way, and they couldn't keep traveling. These sisters have worked to get by through their teenage years in this town. That's become their home, finding whatever jobs they can to keep their family afloat. They all live in a small, run-down, dusty apartment above a storefront, trying to see if to buy a home where they can care for their father. Others continue to pass their windows on the street with dreams of riches while this family is left behind. One sister's working at the post office. The other sister's working as a teacher at the school. One morning, their apartment is broken into, and the teacher arrives home to find her parents distraught in tears because their home has been ransacked and their savings are gone. She looks out the window down on the main street, and she sees her other sister is running already in tears. She thinks her sister has already heard what's happened. They both meet in the stairwell of their apartment, both crying, one holding the empty savings box, the other carrying a letter from the post office, both shouting at each other through their tears. In the confusion, they don't know what each other is saying. And the teacher tells her sister, we've lost everything. We've lost our savings. They've destroyed our home. We have nothing. And the other process is what she's hearing She takes a moment and she smiles and she says, no, we've gained everything. And with tears of joy, she holds up this letter from a solicitor. She says, he's coming to town next week. Somebody seen us. Somebody remembered our family. Somebody we helped. I don't know. Somebody that passed through and they went on and they found gold and they made millions out west and they remembered us and they left their fortune to us. We've been left an inheritance. Next week, the solicitor is coming. We just have to wait one week. We just have to wait one week. In verse 18, the Apostle Paul is saying, For I considered the loss of this present moment not worth comparing with the gain that's to come. 
He's saying what we know about the future, what we know is coming next week, will completely determine how we process the present. The sister says, no, we haven't lost everything. She takes a moment and she smiles. We've gained everything. And yet, for many of us, the waiting on our future eternal inheritance with Christ feels like a whole lot longer away than a week. Which the Apostle Paul knows, God knows. And so it is in this waiting that these verses are directed to us this morning to stir within us hope and comfort. Verses 19 to 23, if you look there in Romans 8, verses 19 to 23, Paul refers to creation being subjected to futility, enslaved to corruption. Meaning that when sin entered the world, sin did not simply alienate humanity from God. Sin cursed creation. There is a deep, deep brokenness in the world. Yes, there is incredible beauty in creation when you leave Illinois. Is that true? Is that amen? But the beauty of creation is only a fraction of God's intent. The wonder that we see, the wonder that we we experience in our world is only a fraction of what would be if sin wasn't a reality. Hence, one of the holes in having a, a secular worldview is that you end up grieving that which society also deems natural. On one hand, we are told that death is natural. Death is part of the cycle of life. And then on the other hand, we are told something is desperately wrong. Poverty, cancer, landfills. Tell us something is wrong, but a secular worldview has no answer for what is wrong. I remember my brother and I, when we were Young boys, we would go down onto my grandfather's farm. He was a pig farmer. We'd be, we were messing around one day on the farm and we went around the back of this building and we went down, down a slope and we came across this pit where animals had, that had died on the farm. This was probably illegal, probably still illegal. And all of the animals had been dumped in, in a pit and they'd been left there to, to decay. Dozens of animals in a pool of rot. And I remember as a, as a boy walking near it and just, something's wrong. You could smell it. And as I, I looked at it, I think this, this, shouldn't, this shouldn't, shouldn't be. This animal, these animals, they weren't made for this. Verse 22, Paul says, all of creation is groaning. There's a deep ache in the seas and the skies and the mountains and the animals around the world groaning for how things should be. Paul says creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. It is a groaning, a longing that's hopeful, expectant, looking forward. Verse 23 says, not only is creation groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We too, as followers of Christ, like creation, are groaning, longing. And the reason for this groaning and longing is that we have the first fruits of the Spirit, which is this incredible 
gospel truth. Remember over the, over the past three weeks, we, we've, we've talked a lot about uh, the Holy Spirit. Yes? We've learned every follower of Christ has been permanently indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not a feeling, it is not a force, but a person, the third person of the Trinity. God being three persons in one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Which we see is how God reveals himself throughout scripture. So the people of God are an inhabited people. God is with us, God is in us. A few weeks ago we thought about how the Spirit reminds us of God's love for us. When we set our minds on the Spirit and we take time to listen to the Spirit. Last week we we read how it is the Holy Spirit that awakens within us and understanding that God is our heavenly Father. When we sing and we we worship and we pray every time our souls are filled up with joy because we know that God loves us and he is our heavenly Father, we should attribute that welling up of joy to the Holy Spirit within us. And now today we see another role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In verse 18 Paul has been saying a day is coming when the suffering and the sickness and the pain in our lives today will one day, looking back, seem like a light momentary affliction compared to the glory and the pleasure and the peace that we will be enjoying. And the reason that today we groan and long for that one day is through, that through the Holy Spirit, like an early blooming flower, gives us a foretaste of the future. The Holy Spirit works in our lives to, to, to wetten our appetite for what's to come. There is a peace that we can experience today, a peace that passes all understanding, even in our pain, that we can have through the Holy Spirit working in our lives. But it is only a foretaste of the eternal peace that we will one day receive. There is a joy that we can experience today, a joy in all circumstances, an intimacy with Christ that we can have today in all circumstances that God is with us, but which is only a foretaste of the intimacy we shall have with Christ when we see him face to face. There's a sense of worth that we can experience today. There's a sense of fulfillment that we can have today, a sense of love, a sense of meaning, a sense of God's pleasure that we can experience on our lives today. But the Holy Spirit is within us, inhabiting us and bringing that future into the present. And it's just a foretaste of the worth, the fulfillment, the love, the meaning and pleasure we will one day have. What that means is that the Holy Spirit ruins us. It's like a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. There's no other chicken sandwich will do. Once we've tasted the first fruits, once we've tasted that early bloom, once we've tasted that foretaste of the Holy Spirit, there's no other taste that will satisfy. There is no other, no other beauty that will capture us. That's why setting our minds on the spirit is so important. It leads us into walking in holiness with the spirit because we've tasted that which is good and true and beautiful and we desire more. And so we become exiles in this world. Longing for our homeland. We groan in our waiting for that day, a day when all will be made right, 
when all will be made new. When we will not only be an inhabited people, but we will be a surrounded people with the unfiltered glory of God. One of the interesting things that Paul does when which can be a little confusing, is he constantly changes the tense of our salvation. Sometimes he says you have, have been saved, and another time he says you will, you will be saved. Sometimes he says you, you have been redeemed, and other times he says you will, you will be redeemed. And he does this in, in our passage. He, he messes with the, the tenses. Jimmy preached last week, verses 15 and 16, as believers in Christ, we are God's children. We have been adopted. Then we get to verse 23 this week, and Paul says, we wait eagerly for adoption. So which is it, Paul? Verses part, Paul is having fun giving away our big idea. Our salvation is not finished. It has only begun. Today we stand justified before God. We are loved by God. We are accepted by God. We are the children of God. We are adopted by God. But our experience of that reality has only begun. And our experience of that reality is still one day to be truly discovered. Then Paul writes these beautiful poetic words for our time of waiting. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul goes on in verse 26. He starts off with the word likewise. As he begins referring to another role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit, it gives us a a foretaste that ruins us and leads us on in the spirit. Thirsty for more holiness and godliness in our lives. As we wait in hope with patience. But the Holy Spirit also helps us in our weakness when we do not know what to pray for as we ought. I think these verses can only really be understood once we've really experienced pain, loss, suffering in our lives, confusion. Listen to verse 26. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness in our eating disorder, in our debt, in our homelessness, in our persecution. For we just don't know what to pray for as we ought. There's a, there's a weight that we can feel in our lives as if we should be able to articulate the way out of our problems. And these verses tell us that sometimes you won't be able to. Sometimes you won't know what to pray because you won't know what to do and that's okay. Sometimes all we can do is cry out before God for help because we do not know in what form the help should come and that's okay. God places no burden on us to know every step into our future. We place that burden on ourselves and God says, give it to me. The Holy Spirit within us takes our unarticulated groans and cries and makes them his own and intercedes for us according to the will of God. 
which means, listen to this, that we can be assured in the mystery of the work of the Holy Spirit within us that when we pray, when we cry, when we're frustrated before God and we don't know what to say, our groans of desire, of solution become the groans of the Holy Spirit and those groans through the Holy Spirit become the prayers of the Holy Spirit which are fully aligned with the perfect will of God for your life. He is praying what you desire to pray. And the assurance of this brings to you is that you've been heard, that God hears you. You've been heard far deeper than you can express. Whatever fears you have that God doesn't really know or God doesn't really understand or God doesn't really get it. Church, the Holy Spirit brings to God your inexpressible and seeks from God for your life that which you don't know you need but that which is right and good for your life. Which means... God takes from us the burden that we feel to be able to articulate the way out of our problems and he allows us to leave our groans and our cries with the Holy Spirit. And in return, in the meantime, in the waiting, God gives us verse 28. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is the one of the most comforting, hopeful, perspective-shifting verses in the Bible, which is also, I think, one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. I think sometimes... I've done this, I do this. We think that this first means if you're, if you're say you're buying a, a, a car and then the car falls through, we think, it's okay, God has a better car for us. All things work together for good. <laughs> we apply for a job and we don't get it. It's okay, God has a better job waiting for us. All things work together for good. And yet we, we rarely go on to the very next verse to see what is this good What is this good that God is working everything towards? Verse 29 reads, For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now some of you got stuck because that verse says the word predestined in it, which sometimes freaks people out. It brings up the question of our autonomy, ability to, 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 to uh, determine our own destiny. But if we go down that route, we'll just totally miss the entire point of what Paul is saying. Because what Paul is saying is that something is fixed. Something is unchangeable. Something is eternally secure and done and happening. And that something is who we will one day be. I don't know what you think the good you desire for your life is. I don't know the good you'd like everything to be working towards. Maybe the good you desire is a single family home. This verse does not promise that. Maybe the good you desire is a spice. This verse does not promise that. Maybe the good you desire is to to be someone else. This verse doesn't promise that. Maybe the good you desire is relief from an illness. This verse doesn't promise that in this life. 
the good that this verse promises everything in your life is working towards is the good of seeing you conformed into the image of Christ. Mind, body, soul. A mind fully, fully, can you imagine, fully able to comprehend what is the height and the depth and the width of God's love for you. A soul fully reconciled back to God, standing before God, cleansed with no sin and no guilt. A body free from all illness, pain, and sickness. And you want a single family home. You maybe think what you need is the house or the spouse or the change in your identity or relief from an illness. But at the deepest level, what we need is Christ-likeness, to be like Christ. I mean radiant. I mean perfect. I mean spotless. I mean the highest good for your life. And these verses are saying that that end for you is fixed. It's secure. It's happening. And now from Everything in your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, is moving you in that one direction. Everything. Everything is molding you, sculpting you, shaping you into the image of Christ. You're going to have his kindness. You're going to have his compassion. You're going to have his courage. No matter what people have done to you, no matter what people do to you, no matter how people try to hurt you, nothing is going to get in the way of God's radiance for you. Church, all morning I've been talking about resurrection. Jesus didn't just die to save us. He resurrected to show us what we would one day be ours. He's erected, he resurrected on the third day to show us what we will one day be like, glorified. Which means every follower of Christ will one day be a perfect, a spotless reflection of God's glory. We will be dazzle, a dazzling reflection of his image and be all God intended humanity to ever be. It's fixed, it's secure, it's our future. The resurrected Christ was the firstborn, the first fruit, the first bloom of a whole new world, which this world is going to one day become. And that's the day the earth is groaning for, a day when sickness and sin and death will be crushed. That's the resurrection, the redemption of our bodies that we are yearning for, when the, the peace and joy and love and reconciliation with God, the flavors of the future, which we can now already taste by the Spirit, as a first bloom will become for us a full-blown banquet and feast around the throne. Our salvation is not finished, Rogers Park. It's only begun. Which means... So we don't need to spend this life indulging ourselves. We've got all the time in the world. We are free now to love. We are free to live with radical ethic of love that speaks of a future world to come, that speaks of our homeland, a love that decenters our own interests and replaces our center with the interests of others. The Christian life is cruciform. It's lived in the form of laying our lives down to become like the one who demonstrated the greatest act of love and laying his life down for us. I'll end with this. The movie ends and nobody moves. 
they've just arrived. They've just started walking towards the horizon. They've just won their freedom. He's just got the girl. Those sisters are spending their inheritance. The credits roll, and you're still with the characters. You're trying to stay with them. You get to the end of the book, and you realize all the chapters in this book were the opening chapters. The conclusion is really the introduction. The ending is just the beginning. Church, the key to activating the joy of our glorious fixed future is remembering that the suffering of today will end and then will be the beginning. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your sovereignty. We praise you, God, that our future in Christ is fixed. Whatever we face this week, whatever we face next week or next year, God, you're in us, you're with us, you're giving us a foretaste of your love and your pleasure, God that one day, God, we will fully discover. God, help us in the waiting. Make us patient people. But God, faithful people. People that know what's to come, God, so that we live differently today, knowing, God, that our hope and our future is secure. In Jesus' name, amen.